BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is the Josh Hammer Show. We're going to be joined momentarily by Liel Leibovitz. He's the editor-at-large for Tablet Magazine. Really excited to bring Liel on to talk about all the insanity happening out there. Speaking of insanity, it wasn't that long ago that we heard from Secretary of State Antony Blinken. He's been trotting around the world. He was in Tel Aviv a couple of weeks ago. He was most recently seen in Tokyo jet-setting all across Asia. Well, it turns out that he has a list of no's and must as it pertains to the Gaza Strip after Hamas is hopefully, thank God, eradicated by the Israel Defense Forces. As for those no's, no forcible displacement of Palestinians from Gaza, no use of Gaza as a platform for terrorism, no reoccupation of Gaza after the conflict ends, no attempt to blockade or besiege Gaza, no reduction in the territory of Gaza. As for his must for Gaza after Hamas, Secretary of State Blinken said... Gaza must include the Palestinian people's voices and aspirations at the center of governance there. It must include the Palestinian authority governing the area. It must include a pathway to Israelis and Palestinians living side by side in states of their own. Anthony Blinken, you must believe in unicorn farts. You must believe in the tooth fairy. What world are you living in? Seriously, what world are you living in that you actually now think that something along these lines is on the table? The leftist foreign policy establishment of which President Joe Biden and Secretary of State Blinken are very much card carrying members. They have been pursuing this so-called two state solution, as Barack Obama would say, along the so-called 1967 borders. They have been pursuing this as a religious pursuit in fanatical fashion for decades and decades and decades. If you don't think that the pogrom of October 7th, the Hamas Holocaust, was a fundamental game changer that shifts the paradigms entirely, if you don't think that that should lead to a fundamental reassessment of the situation, if you are still so deluded by your delusions of grandeur, by your fanatical quasi-religious faith in the peace process, that you think that the same Palestinian authority in Ramallah and the West Bank that has thus far not condemned the Hamas atrocities, if you think that they are somehow a part of the solution, the same dude, Mahmoud Abbas, who runs the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, the same dude who was praising Hitler a couple months ago. Are you kidding me? The Biden administration at this point is absurdly out to lunch when it comes to the situation in the Middle East. Unfortunately, they're absurdly out to lunch when it comes to the situation at home as well, as we saw recently in the form of the White House press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, talking about the imperative to fight Islamophobia, despite the fact that anti-Semitism is roughly five to six times as many religiously motivated hate crimes, according to year-in, year-out FBI statistics, 
as are so-called Islamophobic hate crimes. But when it comes to the Middle East in particular, why in the world is the Biden administration now talking about trying to hamstring Israel when it comes to Hamas, when it comes to Hezbollah, when it comes to the situation in Gaza after the Hamas conflict? You know, I will even concede that, yes, of course, Obama, Biden and the merry band of idiots who travel in those foreign policy circles. Yes, of course, they don't like Israel. Yes, they don't like the Jews. All of this should by now be obvious. But what message does it send to all of our other allies around the world? If this is how we treat a purported United States ally at a time of existential crisis for that ally, do you think that this is reassuring for the United Kingdom, France, Japan, India? What about Saudi Arabia and the UAE, the Arab countries that have been aligned with the U.S.? Do you think they're happy with the U.S. treating a purported core ally like this? Unfortunately, it's nothing new for the Democratic foreign policy establishment. Up is down, down is up. Like I said, we are excited to bring on momentarily Leah Leibovitz. He's the editor-at-large for Tablet Magazine. He's going to help us unpack through all of this nonsense from the Biden administration and all the usual powers that be around the world. We're going to take it to a quick commercial break here. Stay with us. We'll be right back with Liel Leibovitz of Tablet Magazine. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Josh Hammer Show. We're joined here by Liel Leibovitz. Liel is editor-at-large for Tablet Magazine, host of its weekly podcast, Unorthodox. And most timely, he is also the author of the brand new book, How the Talmud Can Change Your Life, Surprisingly Modern Advice from a Very Old Book. Liel, thank you so much for joining us. Shalom to you. A pleasure. You know, I've been reading essentially everything you write for the past few years, Liel. It's been very hard because... You're prolific. You put up a lot of content, so it's a little hard to keep up. But I, I, I genuinely admire your writing style. I think that you just have a, a masterful way of words. And I say that not so much to butter your ego, although feel free to take it that way if you want to. But I say that by, <laughs> by way of saying the following, which is that I actually just for the first time learned a very interesting biographical detail about you for the very first time that I, I somehow had no idea which is that your, your father was a very famous bank robber in Israel. And I, I, I literally just learned this like a week or two ago. I've never heard you talk about it before. So before we kind of get into everything going on in the world, I'm, I'm kind of just curious to, to hear from you directly. I, I mean, what, what has that been like? I mean, how did kind of the son of a famous bank robber become just a, just a leading Jewish Israeli intellectual like yourself? Well, you know, First of all, thank you for all the kind words, and, and uh, I, I feel exactly the same way about you, my friend. Uh, but I am glad that your upbringing was, was slightly more conventional than mine, because uh, I grew up with, with a father who really wanted only one thing for his son, his only son, that would be me, uh, which is for the boy to grow up to be a man. Uh, so we would go shooting when I was like four or five years old. Uh, he, he had like you know, like a big Smith and Wesson that nearly blew my arm off anytime I fired it. We would go riding motorcycles and kind of like changing tires and doing other manly things. Um, and when I was around 12 or 13, 
I became completely obsessed with this figure who was constantly on the news called the motorcycle bandit. This person, no one knew who he was, uh, would be in and out of banks in 40 seconds um, and, and elude and evade the, the police. Uh, and of course, as kids, we both idolized this guy. And also kind of speculated, oh, who is he? Is he like a former Mossad agent who's like trying to mess with the system? Is he like a disgruntled Palestinian who wants to bring down the state of Israel by, you know, taking all the money? Uh, and then one day I come back uh, from school and there's an, an, a knock uh, on the door and it's three uh, lovely people from the Israeli police. They say, well, you know, we, we have a bit of news for you. Um, your father uh, has just been arrested. And I said, oh, you know, well, you... you this must be some terrible mistake as my father's a middle-aged man with, with like a little punchy belly and, and a receding hairline. He cannot possibly be this great guy. Uh, and he said, no, no, uh, it's serious. He confessed. Uh, and at that point, I kind of had to piece together, uh, you know, the, the real story of my childhood that, of course, was, was much stranger than anything I could imagine because this man uh, would jump in and out of a bank in 45 seconds, an impressive feat on its own right. I can't barely go to the bathroom in 45 seconds. Then he would ride around a corner on his motorcycle up a ramp he had custom built into a van he had rented, where he would stop and ask himself the seminal question of bank robbing, which is, where's the last place you would look for a bank robber? Now, you could pause uh, this podcast and think about it, but the correct answer is obviously the bank. And so he would take off his jacket and his helmet and tuck his gun in and very calmly walk back to the bank, which at this point was, you know, kind of like teeming with poli police officers. Uh, and he would say, well, you know, I, I would like to make a deposit. And they would say, sir, you have to leave. This is a crime scene. And he would say, but my wife would be so angry because I promised her that I would make this deposit. And the police officer seeing this, you know, schlumpy, frumpy, middle-aged man said like, okay, just be quick about it. And he'd deposit the money into the bank he'd robbed not three minutes earlier. This is the 80s before computers making the money virtually untraceable. And he did this again and again and again uh, for about a year and a half, uh, always uncaught. Until he got kind of fed up with it and, and thought to himself naively, he was uh, the son of one of the wealthiest families in Israel. So he thought, you know what, uh, I'll allow myself to get caught and I'll say, I'm very sorry. I'll give all the money back because he kept every shekel of it. And then uh, they'll let me go home, right? Well, it turned out it didn't quite work uh, out this way for him. Uh, and it gave me, um, you know, a very different childhood than the one I thought I would have. Just to make sure that I have the story straight, you were familiar growing up with the legend of the motorcycle bandit, so to speak, well before you found out that it was your father. Is that... I dressed up as him for Purim, the Jewish holiday. <laughs> oh, my God. Literally. Yep. What a story. I, I mean, that's... If you haven't written a memoir about that, Liel, I, I, I think I know what your next book is. I mean, I my mind was blown when a friend told me about this recently, because I just know you as, as a writer and a thinker. That's really just incredible stuff. And frankly, I feel sheepish trying to even follow up with that on some more mundane events about everything going on in the world. But you've had a lot to say about everything going on in the world, of course, as well as, as it pertains to your homeland of, of Israel. So uh, let's kind of shift the conversation there. And one thing that I want to get your thoughts on right away, you know, you've been outspoken about your your turn over the past, call it five-ish, 10 years at the most, maybe years from, from the left to the right. You know, Tablet Magazine, where you work, has done a series of, of, um, of stop being shocked symposia, basically trying to kind of get its readers to stop being surprised at all, all the woke leftist intersectional blah, 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 insanity, DEI, all this stuff that you, Barry Weiss and others just ha have been sounding the alarm about. 
So having said all that, I'm curious if you are surprised or dare I say shocked at, at just how bad it has actually gotten. Because as someone who's very jaded and very cynical myself, I have to confess that even I have been a little surprised, to put it mildly, at just how bad it currently is, not just on university campuses, but really on the streets of many of our major cities. So as someone who I know is a little, you know, a, a little hardened, a little toughened yourself, I'm curious if you've also been caught a little flat-footed. You know, I'll be lying if I said uh, that I watched 7,000 of, of, of my neighbors here in New York City marching on the Brooklyn Bridge, waving Hamas flags, and didn't think to myself, oh my lord, uh, things have gone very bad, very fast. Uh, so was I a little bit uh, kind of intrigued by this rapid spiraling descent into absolute Hell, yes, I was. At the same time, I think anyone who is truly surprised uh, simply has not been paying attention to the previous 2023 uh, episodes of the show, you know, the Jews among the nations. I think what we're seeing right now is a culmination of of so many policies that you, Josh, and and myself, Tablet Magazine, and and other publications have been warning about uh, for, for so long. And the thing that's kind of really most, I think, alarming about it is that it's actually not about the Jews at all. Uh, this is truly about America. We're seeing the culmination in so many ways of the George Floyd riots. We're seeing the culmination in so many ways of, you know, years and years and years of just, just political and, and socioeconomic unrest. Uh, we're seeing a society at a major crossroads asking itself, well, what is it that we want to be? And as always, I think, you know, Jews are but the canary in the coal mine. And, and, you know, I heard you talk about this with Ann Coulter on, on her show recently. I think this is a very important point to flesh out because I totally get it when a lot of non-Jews out there hear the Jews kind of talking nonstop about anti-Semitism. Oh, I mean, you know, don't the Jews know how well they have it in America? And of, of course we do. I mean, America has just been an absolutely you know, incredible welcoming place for the Jews. If you want to kind of do the whole history going at least as far back as George Washington's famous letter in 1790s to the Jews of Newport, Rhode Island, this really beautiful, really kind of frankly, philo-Semitic letter. I mean, the, the history here is is a beautiful history, but I, I, at the same time, it's incumbent, I think, upon the non-Jews in America to recognize that this rot is ultimately not about the Jews. So uh, why don't you tr- flesh that out for the listeners a little bit more? Leah? Yeah, you know, a- anti-Semitism, this is the strange and, and kind of wondrous thing about anti-Semitism. It is really never about the Jews. And it's easy enough to understand this because when you peer into the dark and benighted mind, of the anti-Semite, uh, you see a whole host of jumbled statements kind of coexisting. The Jew is all powerful and could take my job, control the media, the banks, and the weather. The Jew is completely powerless and cannot even defend himself. You know, the Jew is overly sexualized and is here to get your daughters. The Jew is completely asexual and is not manly enough. It's so irrational and erratic and it's just a testament to what you're looking at being not some actual coherent cohesive worldview that targets one specific group of people the jews but really a sort of like mind rot uh, that is deeply 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 prone to all kinds of crazy conspiracy theories now once you have that mindset once you're willing to believe these things about a group called the Jews, you're also willing to believe a whole host of things. You're also willing to believe that the police are out there murdering uh, wantonly 
uh, black American citizens for no other reason than, you know, systemic racism. You're also willing to believe that it's a really good idea to chemically castrate, you know, young children in the name of, of some kind of gender equality. You're also willing to believe a whole host of other very, very, very dangerous ideas. Because really what you're saying here, Josh, and this is, this is kind of a weird thing to get because the terms I'm about to use seem to us like they're, they're taken from a very different point in human history. But what you're really seeing here uh, in the streets of, of New York and Los Angeles and so many other cities is, is just the most recent season of a very, very, very old reality show uh, called Civilization Against Paganism. Uh, these people who are trying to burn down Grand, Grand Central Station, who are carrying Hamas flags on college campuses and on the Brooklyn Bridge, they're simply pagans. What they believe or don't believe doesn't really matter as much because they don't really believe anything. What they believe is in is desecration. They believe in taking everything that we hold dear, these ideas of faith, family, and nation, and quite literally burning them down. We've seen this conflict since at least the book of Leviticus. Good news, it always ends with the good guys winning. Uh, but now is our turn in America to fight yet another round against the heathens. And it's exactly right, honestly. I, I, if I recall, Liel, you actually wrote an essay about this for a commentary magazine about the new sure paganism. Did. I remember it very well now that I think about it. And, you know, I was saying it for, for a while as well. I think many of us were kind of glomming onto this idea. You mentioned the transgender phenomenon. I mean, how else to understand the transgender phenomenon but a fundamentally pagan movement, a movement that at its core rejects Genesis one twenty seven, the entire idea of sexual complementarity. I mean, it is pagan, it's heathen to its very core, and I, I agree with you that, that really is fundamentally what we are seeing in a lot of these pro-Hamas protests, these disgusting rallies of support for a genocidal Islamist death cult in the streets of America that's, and around the world. That's why we call, uh, you know, Palestine Transjordan. It's another completely fictitious, I'm being funny, but but not entirely, because it, it, this a whole notion that there is such a thing, and you've been speaking about this so eloquently for so long, you know, that there is such a thing as an eloquent, coherent movement of of nationality called you know palestinians this is this is a movement started in 1964 by an egyptian con man uh who guilted the west into acknowledging that uh he somehow represents a a legitimate group of people which is not to say that there are not actual human beings living in ramallah and nablus and jericho and tilkaram and gaza there are just not to say that they don't have aspirations and ideas and wills and desires of their own of course they do and they have to be taken very seriously but they belong to different distinct tribes and families hamulas in, in arabic uh, that don't really see themselves as having any kind of coherent national identity, which is why it is so freaking hard for the quote-unquote Palestinian Authority to continue and govern, because these are not people who have any historical ties binding them together. If you uh, do archaeological digs in this area, you will not find, you know, 2,000-year-old coins pertaining to the Palestinian people. Uh, it's a made-up modern narrative that is here to to apply and cajole Westerners to support them on behalf of some notion of universal justice and victimhood. Yeah, it's fundamentally just a, a Soviet-era psyop. It's a psychological yep. information operation against the West. We're joined here by the great Leo Leibovitz. He is editor-at-large for Tableau Magazine. We're going to take a quick commercial break. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more from Leo.
VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Josh Hammer Show. Leo, I know you have a degree from Columbia University, which, to put it mildly, is a school that has been in, in the I'm news sorry. recently, <laughs> and uh, not necessarily for all of the best reasons in the world. But I, I, I say that because Columbia, Harvard, all of this just awful stuff that we are seeing just disproportionately in America's quote-unquote elite prestigious institutions it's got a lot of folks wondering, uh, what do we do? And the way that I approach the question of institutional capture by the woke ideology, by the crazies, just for lack of a better term, I, I think it's basically and all of the above approach, which, which is on the one hand, you don't necessarily want to unilaterally disarm and, and just pretend or, or just to act like you can't make any infiltration any in, inroads in the faculty lounge on the other hand you have to be sober and recognize that that's an uphill battle and you have to focus on building alternative institutions i, I i'm curious how you see this problem and, and specifically the remedies to this institutional capture that tragically has resulted in part in this just horrific outburst of jew hatred over the past month month and a half or so well i've had the uh the misfortune of of, of having a, a real insider's close look at at this question for the last you know two decades i i came to this country uh in october of 99 it was a thursday uh friday morning first chance i got i took the subway up to columbia university and stood there at two thousand dollars in my pocket that i'd earned working as a guard at uh, at a factory and i stood there and i watched these like beautiful ivy covered buildings and i said to myself you know one day soon i'll i'll go here and then I'll get my PhD here, and then I'll teach here, and then I will be someone in American society. I would have arrived. I will become this immigrant success story that I that I so craved to be. And, and then something terrible happened, Josh. It all came true. And I got my PhD at Columbia, and then I taught at Columbia, and then at NYU, and realized just how entirely and incredibly deep the rot truly is, how these institutions have become you know, uh, kind of feverish swamps where mutually accrediting mediocrities uh, just toil uh, together to basically generate Nazis. Um, I wish I could tell you, and I've spent a lot of time, and, and maybe I'm just not smart or creative or informed enough, but I wish I could tell you that there was anything that we could do to to resolve uh, this problem, to take back the institutions, that if only we had the right investment, if only we had the right strategy, if only we had the right approach, we could save Columbia, bring it back to its heyday, we could save Harvard, Princeton, and Yale. I am very sad to say that I no longer believe that is the case. I think we should let these institutions become what they already are, which is finishing schools to the sons and daughters of the Chinese Communist Party and the Qatari terrorist supporting elite. Uh, and we should remind ourselves that the thing that we care about in this country is not, you know, a degree from a university. The thing we care about, the thing that made us great is education. And here's the thing, that's replicable elsewhere. It's replicable elsewhere under much better conditions. It's replicable elsewhere under uh, much better arrangements that better suit our current and changing kind of socioeconomic 
mode of production. Universities uh, were fine and indeed thrived under a certain kind of society and economy and, and, and kind of socioeconomic structure. I think it's time to radically reconsider this. And what we're getting here is a gift because we could tell kids now for a fact, hey, you don't have to spend half a million or, or a quarter of a million of someone else's money and four years of your life being continuously brainwashed and assaulted by people who hate America, who hate your families, who hate your values, who hate everything that you're about. You could take this money and travel the world. You could take this money and you could learn a useful profession. You could take this money and find a niche in an economy that increasingly does no longer requires the same types of, of, of skills and, and educational assets that were brought about by traditional universities. I think that is a dramatically hopeful thing if you're willing to uh, wean yourself off of your prestige addiction and say to yourself, yeah, I don't care about the Harvard degree. I care about having a good profession and a good life and a good community. Yeah, I mean, look, the reality is I, I went to fancy schools myself, right? But why in the world would I risk sending my kids in the future, God willing, to go off to these madrasas of wokeness and then just have them mm -hmm. indoctrinated into the exact ideology that I just spent the first 18 years of their lives shielding them from. Precisely. And look, I, I have a 12-year-old and a 10-year-old. I say to them, you know, four times a week, you're never going to college. You could go to a, a religious seminary. You could go to the army, who I'll be very proud of, but not college. Now, look, I, I assume that there are people who are listening to us right now and they're saying, guys, you're being ridiculous. You're not really looking at reality. So, so permit me a, a brief kind of pause for reality's sake. The only reason you have to go to college, there are only two reasons to go to college, right? One is obviously to get a great education. The second, let's be honest, to get a great job. Uh, if you look at the first reason uh, or the first kind of idea, getting a great education, it doesn't take a professor to understand that you are no longer getting not just a great education, but an education at all in our finest American universities. In part, it's because something like 80% of all classes in most schools are taught by adjuncts. Uh, and in large part, it's because these institutions have become, they're like a McDonald's or an Arby's. They sell franchises because now there's, you know, NYU Doha, NYU Shanghai, Columbia, like all these other places that just pay money for the brand. It, these are big businesses now. They're no longer serious universities. The second reason, so I, I will go to college so I may have a good job, is also no, no longer valid. Because if you look at all the top companies that you would love for your son or your daughter to work for, your Facebooks, your Googles, your Apples, none of them require a college degree because they recognize that a kid could sit on, you know, Khan Academy online for like eight months and learn a skill set that is far greater than anything a computer science program would, would give that kid. And if that kid also picks up a bunch of books and travels a little bit, he or she would be a much well-rounded, better educated, better prepared citizen than, you know, four years of gender studies at Princeton. Of course. Yeah. I mean, you know, my fiance and I are very much of the opinion that God willing will cross that bridge when we get to it. But at a, at a bare minimum, I, I think shielding them for 18 years and then sending them off to these, you know, Ivy League schools or prestigious schools just to do whatever they can and kind of the ultimate liberal, you know, rational self-maximizing mentality. I mean, that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense at all, to put it mildly. Uh, Leo, I want to the conversation in a slightly different direction here as we unfortunately come towards the end of our interview. You've mentioned Qatar and Doha multiple times now. That, that 
that's also an issue that I feel is is heavily undercovered. It is heavily under discussed, even within right of center, broadly speaking, media. Frankly, even within you know, you know within Jewish media, within leaders of Jewish organizations and whatnot. There. And that's the fact that to kind of borrow our phrase we used earlier to refer to Yasser Arafat and the, and the idea of Palestinian nationalism, the, the entire notion of Qatar as this flashy, sleek World Cup hosting Formula One Grand Prix, you know, lavish party throwing. The notion of this tiny, very wealthy country as a forward-looking Western-aligned country is a massive, massive psyop, a massive information operation that, once again, so many in the West have just totally been deluded by, when in reality, Qatar is the Iranian regime's closest Sunni ally in the region. They fund Hamas, they fund the Muslim Brotherhood, Al Jazeera, their state TV network disseminates Islamism all throughout the region. We can go back to when the Saudis, the Emiratis, wanted to boycott them for this back in 2017. Do you think that anyone in the national security establishment and the think tanks and the Pentagon and anyone in America, is anyone waking up to Qatar? I mean, is this the moment? Because based on what I've seen from Biden and Blinken so far, it doesn't seem like it. No, I don't think it seems like that at all. Look, I I, I recommend uh, for everyone to go read our friend uh, and my colleague at Talbot Magazine, Armin Rosen's reporting on Qatar. Not only are you know Americans at large don't seem to be waking up to to Qatar and its perils, but American Jews aren't either. You know the Qataris are now through some very very weird uh, turn of circumstances that Armin writes about in in Tablet or wrote about in Tablet recently. The Qataris are behind many of the efforts of American Jewish organizations to hire these expert outsider security firms that purportedly are here to defend and protect Jewish institutions like synagogues and JCCs. That is all done by individuals with deep, 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 deep ties to the Qataris. It is so intense and so insane that people don't see this. $4.7 billion, I believe, is what the Qataris have invested in the last decade alone uh, or 15 years uh, in American universities, you look at all these demonstrations in the streets, uh, you know, of our largest cities. Who, who, who do you suppose is funding those? Who do you suppose is paying for these remarkably well organized, um, kind of occurrences? I think it's time we really woke up and realized that you may think that the war is happening between Israel and Hamas in a faraway land called Gaza. Uh, it's happening right here. Uh, it is in large part a war in America, and it's happening in our streets. I mean, a lot of people have barely heard of Qatar. I mean, let's let's start there. Most people who have heard of it probably can't even pronounce it properly. Query whether I'm even doing so on this on this very show. I think there's like three or four different ways to pronounce this tiny but disproportionately influential country. I, I saw a graphic on Fox News a week or two ago. I, I think Qatar is literally the number one country in the world when it comes to funding American higher education universities over the past decade, like literally higher than, yep. than China, Russia, whoever, the UK, France, really crazy stuff. So when we talk about kind of the indoctrination, you know, a lot of it ultimately is Qatari money and Al Jazeera loves to play it both ways. The Al Jazeera America is totally woke and left wing and it all plays into this broader kind of, you know, BLM narrative, which Hamas, to its credit, is actually very savvy about. I mean, I saw an interview a few weeks ago where you had some Hamas operative talking about, you know, from Ferguson, Missouri to the Gaza Strip. They've, they've actually very keenly taken up this narrative. So let's go ahead then and talk about 
talk about Hamas. So uh, what, when does this war actually end, Liel? That's kind of the conversation or that a lot of people are currently having now. And the obvious answer is when Hamas is fully eradicated. That's what Prime Minister Netanyahu says. And that's the correct answer. The, the obvious response to that is what exactly does that mean? And why wouldn't another radical Sunni Islamist organization just then take over? So are, surely you're concerned about that because I think everyone should be concerned about that. I'd be, I'd be curious for your thoughts on how you approach that particular predicament. I think before we even figure out or, or try to answer this, this very good and very pressing question, when does this war end? Uh, we would be well served to take a moment and realize or ask ourselves what this war is. Uh, as I said a moment ago, it is not a war between uh, Israel and Hamas. It is a war between the so-called axis of resistance. By the way, curious how that word resistance found its uh, way into the uh, mainstream of the American crazy left. The axis of resistance uh, comprising, of course, of, of Iran, Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthis, uh, and with the uh, enthusiastic support of both the Russians and, and to a larger extent, the Chinese. Uh, it is a war between the axis of resistance and the civilized world, which includes Israel and the United States and France, but also, you know, India and Saudi Arabia and Armenia and a bunch of other uh, nations fighting the same oppression uh, under under different management, under different guise. Uh, I think once you understand it like this, you have a very different set of aims. It is not just that Israel must now eradicate Hamas, uh, a, a terror organization of you know several ten thousand uh, Cretans who, uh, God willing, will be destroyed very very quickly. It's not even that Israel will then have a sizable problem on its hands of what to do with a civilian population of about 2 million people who have been completely brainwashed for decades that the only cause for their existence is to slaughter and murder Jews. Uh, the larger problem with the larger question is, is, is how do we fight the larger war? Now, uh, I, think, I think you agree with me, and I think a lot of, of our listeners right now would agree too, that it would be a damn shame uh, to see American boys and American dollars lost uh, to this conflict. And thankfully, I think there's a pretty easy kind of path forward. Uh, the first uh, is to let the people who are already completely committed to fighting this war fight this war. Israel is very, very dedicated uh, to uh, assure its own survival, obviously. I think the United States needs to simply get out of its way, uh, not pose any needless uh, ultimatums or, or requests or demands that have much more to do with Joe Biden's electoral needs in, say, Michigan uh, than they do with the actual national security interests of the United States. I think it is time, as I've written before in Tablet, to end uh, the American military aid to Israel, which is really just a backdoor subsidy to American defense contractors, which doesn't uh, further Israel's security interests or America's security interests. I think it's time to also, and most importantly, end the absolute disastrous policy of integration, uh, popularly known as the Iran deal, uh, and go right back to what has been working so well under President Trump, which is a policy of, once again, isolating the Iranian, once again, uh, eliminating uh, agents of chaos like Hassam Soleimani and, and denying them the, the cash and the breathing room that they need to continue and spread terrorism. These are the real goals of the war. And the good news is they could be one, we're still at early stages, they could be won relatively easily 
and without a great deal uh, of, of American involvement or engagement. I'm so happy that you mentioned your call for the U.S. to wind down its annual aid to Israel, which is something that I've been saying for, gosh, at least six, seven years or so. And it's been very lonely at times, but I was really happy to see your your forceful arguments there over the essay, making the pro-America and pro-Israel case as to why the U.S. aid to Israel should ultimately wind down. We really encourage the listeners to go ahead and check out that essay at Tablet Magazine if you have not already done so. But for that matter, you should go ahead and check out all of Liel's writings at Tablet Magazine and also First Things Magazine, where he's a monthly columnist as well. He's also the author of the brand new book, How the Talmud Can Change Your Life, Surprisingly Modern Advice from a Very Old Book. Leo Leibovitz, you are brilliant and really appreciate you joining us this week. Thanks so much. Josh, what a pleasure. Josh Hammer Show. It's ah! Hammer Time. Go! Scottish school children urged to read woke books claiming racism was invented by, you guessed it, white people. This is a project funded by the Scottish National Party being piloted to help enlighten pupils on racial issues. This project has even suggested that it is impossible for white people to experience racism. We've heard this claim over and over again. Over the past few years, especially since the Black Lives Matter Antifa riots of 2020 after the death of the great martyr St. George Floyd. And this argument is that because racism has an inherent structural power component to it, that therefore only white people can be racist and and, and no one else. Are you kidding me? Look, I don't care what your skin color is, truly. I mean, last I checked, going back to Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King Jr., not caring about someone's skin color, color blindness was actually what it meant to not be racist. So I really don't care about that. But if you want to come to me, no matter what your skin color is, white, brown, black, yellow, red, who cares? And you want to tell me that you care, that you care about what color my skin is or what color Joe or Mary's down the blocks skin is. And that therefore, because of their skin color, that that they should be entitled to certain benefits or to certain detriments because of their skin color. You are racist. I do not care what your skin color is. This is just part of a broader leftist attempt to not so subtly, change the definition of terms to advance a crass political agenda. In this particular case, that crass political agenda is DEI, CRT, essentially the entirety of the modern woke ideology. Related to that, New Texas DEI law closes a campus LGBTQ center. So SB 17, this is a law in Texas. It requires DEI offices at public universities to disband by 2024, also potentially has the uh, incidental effect of shutting down university-run LGBTQ plus centers. So uh, this is a great law. This is a fantastic piece of legislation passed by Texas, which has been one of the leaders when it comes to the fight against DEI on campus. It was Barry Weiss, we mentioned earlier in our conversation with Liel, she had an excellent essay recently talking about how DEI, DEI specifically on campus, the the so-called diversity, equity, and inclusion apparatuses that are all throughout American higher education, frankly, that increasingly are all throughout the American corporate boardroom and Fortune 500 companies. This has a huge role to play in the absolute disgusting explosion 
of Jew hatred, anti-Semitism, and outright support for Hamas, the Islamist terrorist organization. I think that that argument is very sound. Anytime that you go down the rabbit hole of trying to arbitrarily divide people in society by oppressed and oppressor of hierarchically ranking some as higher than others based on perceived and or actual victimhood status... Dude, just don't go there. That is a very, very toxic road to go down. Last I checked, this country was founded upon a once quaint notion of equality under the law. That should continue to be our lodestar. Using the power of the state to eradicate this cancerous tumor from our, uni- from our university campuses ought to be a bare minimum move for us to try to fight back. Chicago is so unpleasant that migrants are fleeing back to Venezuela. What a story this is. Since August of last year, over 20,000 illegals have arrived in Chicago. They're being bussed from Governor Greg Abbott in Texas, and they are so put off. They're just going back home to Maduro's Venezuela. What does it say about the city of Chicago, which has just totally gone down the toilet since I moved out of there in the year 2016? And let me tell you, when I was living there for three years, The crime problem was a pretty big problem to begin with, but it has just totally gotten out of control. This new mayor that they elected to replace Lori Lightfoot earlier this year, Mayor Johnson, what an absolute nut job he is. Situation in Chicago is just horrifically bleak, but man, choosing to go back to Venezuela, where, I mean, God knows what you're eating on a day-to-day basis, where inflation is four or five, potentially even six digits, depending on the month says everything you need to know about the state of Chicago. And by the way, good for Governor Greg Abbott for shipping these migrants up there. That is 100% the move that a border state like Texas should be making. Finally, San Francisco boots vagrants off streets ahead of Xi Jinping visit. So in the span of a few days, the city scrubbed seven intersections in the Tenderloin and south of Market. They were basically trying to do this ahead of Xi Jinping coming there to meet with President Joe Biden. Governor Gavin Newsom admitted the cleanups were only done to provide a good impression. I mean, look, uh, denial is a bad thing in general. So when you have Gavin Newsom admitting, here he is, he's admitting that they're doing this to try to present a faux manufactured fake better optic image for the world. That's a good place to start. 